after the dust had settled in Marquesa, you and I were standing there and the ring was gone. Pure exhaustion. Pure exhaustion. Uh, there really wasn't a moment where we got to go dump Gatorade on each other <laughs> uh, because the way that we had set up our arrangement with the building was that we actually had to stay behind and uh, mop up the hall, <laughs> put away the chairs and clean up all the garbage. So while there was this euphoria that we had pulled off this show that pretty much went off without a hitch, I like to think, um, we had to stick around and play janitor. Yeah, um, we were janitors for like an hour after the show. Now, this is our first show, right? And as you guys heard in the last episode, we're already having trouble like recruiting actual veteran workers on the show. So let me tell you, there was not a army of young boys ready to impress to help us out. It was probably our longest cleanup. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I remember. I remember coming home reeking of bleach, and <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, because we had to we had to clean up all the garbage, haul out the trash, break down the chairs, uh, and so I think it, it definitely gave Biss and I some time to talk. I think um, my initial reaction internally was. Well, fuck, that worked. Uh, now we have to do it again, <laughs> and, like, yep. next month. Um, Biss, what was your reaction? Yeah, I was uh, I was in shock that people showed up. <laughs> I, um, I, remember, I remember you saying that, and I remember being pissed at you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you were like, bro, I thought we were going to get, like, 30 people. Yeah. No, you, you never know. And, um, you know, even... Um, even guys that have run for a long time always talk about that show where all of a sudden nobody's in the building and you're looking around going, what the fuck did we do wrong? Right. Um, so, you know, I was ready for that first show out. I mean, you look at, uh, you look at some of, uh, more successful companies, some of their first shows, there's not a whole lot of people in that crowd. So, um, yeah, yeah, we we I uh, based on what a lot of other veteran uh, promoters have told me, we pretty much knocked it out of the park in terms of attendance and in terms of just running a relatively smooth show. I think the only thing that didn't run according to plan was uh, how well the show came across in our media. I, oh I, God! I, yeah, it, the the first show. Yeah. I think. How did you describe it? Looking. Oh, and that was the second show. The first show I won't even watch. Yeah. Um, it's just it's god awful. It looks like security cam footage, you know. Um, you said it was like looking at footage shot through a fish tank. Yeah. So, and and that's even the second one where we improved a little bit. Uh, it looked like an old tube TV underwater and looking at it through the uh, the glass of a submarine. Like it's just. And it's, and it's stationary. There's no action to it, there's, really. There's at least two hard cams on the second one, and we at least used a moving hard cam for the first two shows, which at least you don't lose the action when it goes out of frame. But, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, it was a mess. Um, so, yeah, okay, but... Yeah, so <laughs> I don't I don't want to focus too much on, yeah. on, on the foibles. On the, yeah. But uh, anyway... Um, so, so initially, I think uh, I was not supposed to be the booker. I was supposed to be uh, a guy that just kind of gave you notes on the cards. But since I kind of took the bull by the horns with this particular card, I became acutely aware that I couldn't really drop the ball. Uh, fortunately, as we had discussed previously, I'm, I'm super big into uh, long-term booking. 
Um, and a lot of the guys told me that long-term booking on an indie level couldn't be done. Uh, but it was my goal to do the best that I could. And one of the things that I really love about wrestling in terms of, you know, producing a show is that you do have to roll with the changes. People get injured. Folks get signed. Uh, and so you kind of have to create what uh, Biss coined as the audible. And I thought I actually became quite good at that. I, I, I Hopefully he'll back it up. But we began to call them happy accidents as well, where somebody would get hurt or somebody wouldn't be available. And so we'd have to shift gears and change the story. But that, to me, was one of the things that I really enjoyed about uh, booking pro wrestling, which I think made Biss want to vomit a lot. <laughs> <laughs> nah, not so much. Um but uh, I did not, of course, coin the term audible. Uh, <laughs> very, very old school football term. But uh, well, that, that the, was funny. I remember, In the context of wrestling, yeah, I've never heard it used yeah, before. But I remember when I was like, yeah, man, just an audible. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, yeah, that's when this happens and you got to do something else. Um, I always say, man, like there's two sides of it. The long term booking, you're a writer at that point, right? Yeah. That's a writer. A, a booker is somebody that can make those changes on the fly, right? That's what really makes you a booker is when you show up day of and you get handed that shit sandwich and you make it fucking work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think we were in a good spot because when we first met and until recently I went back and, and watched these shows um, and I, I started to realize exactly how much we had on paper to start with. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say we had a good six, seven shows. We knew what we wanted yeah. to do for the first year. I was really happy that you entertained that. I personally think that while there are some people, I'll just go ahead and say it. Most wrestlers, when they come up to me, they go, where are you going with this brother? And then you'll give them an outline and they'll either shit on it or they'll be happy with it. I, I typically find that most wrestlers work better when they know where they're going and it motivates them i think to put on their best their best game face yeah that's true there's there's also an aspect of it where um wrestlers hate creative no matter what like we've talked about it. we've been like man we get all this shit for this but then like you're at podunk show fucking 36 in the middle of nowhere right and what you're doing makes absolutely no sense and you don't say a word, right? You just take your payday and go. So that part gets very frustrating. Yeah, I remember uh, Matthew Palmer, uh, who would later join us um, with the company, was kind of paying attention to what we were doing and he told me that not everything needed to have a story or a purpose and he said that sometimes you could just have wrestling for the sake of wrestling. And I saw that at a lot of these country bumpkin type shows and even shows in San Antonio. And to me, it was just, it was boring. Um, and I personally feel that wrestling with context is wrestling at its height when you have context and you're building history. And I think the first year was really I, when we sat down, we decided we want to build a world. Oh, man. Um, uh, before we jump into that, uh, Part of the reason um, that I was able to support you on this is this is actually a battle that I had in Houston when I was helping book in Houston. Um, I went in, the people that were there then, Tugboat Taylor in particular, um, and Chaz Taylor, who was quote-unquote booking, for lack of a better term, um, had told me the exact same thing. Like In independent wrestling, you can't do long-term booking. 
Like, you just can't do it. Like, well, fucking why? You have the same fucking 14 people showing up here every fucking show. They're mostly your students. Of course you can. Um, and I think I lasted three months there because they were not the most organized uh, people on the planet. And it, it became extremely... I actually woke up one night uh, covered half of my face in blood from like a stressed nosebleed uh, from just interacting with that company. And like, that was the beginning of the end. Um, the next show they did something stupid and it was just like, I'm not coming back, but I had been down that road before. So I, I knew that progress could be made if we just kept our nose to the grindstone and pushed forward. Um, but yeah, as we get into these next couple of shows, I, I think the, you know, the universe building that we did, um, was really something that wasn't being done in other places and really set us apart. So I think that was a, that was a great, that was great kind of like uh, pulling from your writing background and putting it into a wrestling world uh, worked out uh, really well. So uh, yeah, um, there are a few things that I want to go into before we uh, tackle wired for war. Inspire Pro's second uh, foray into live event hood. You mean live pro wrestling, right? Live pro wrestling. <laughs> yeah. um, so one of the first complaints that that we we fielded, and it was probably one of the only complaints that we really had regarding the show, was the uh, the lack of women. And uh, this is something that I I need to address. Um, we didn't have any women's matches on the first show. And that was very intentional on my part. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't come from a, a d discriminatory nature, um, but it had a lot to do with the fact that I saw a lot of women's wrestling presented all throughout Texas as a special attraction uh, uh, added to shows. And I, I wanted to, if we were going to present women's wrestling, show people that it could be phenomenal. You know, this isn't. This is a women's wrestling lover. And uh, at that point in time, there were maybe like four women who were really great <laughs> yeah. in, in the Texas wrestling scene. And of course, it has since then exploded. There are so many more women who are just killing it out there on uh, Texas's indie scene. But at the time, there weren't really enough women to build, uh, like build a division around. Yeah. Well, and also, um, I mean, we talked about on uh, the first episode. Um, you know, that we kind of got painted as a spiteful company, right? We were running in spite of anarchy. Um, the the women's wrestling was kind of a staple of anarchy, and that was a part of the reason why I stayed away from it, you know? We, we didn't want to be viewed as trying to do anarchy over again, even though that's how people try to paint us, um, you know? So that was another another case where we were off on our own foot trying to do our own thing, you know? That, that too, but also I, I just wanted to, if we were going to present uh, women's graps, I wanted to make yeah. sure that it, it was quality and I wanted to make sure that it was something that basically I initially envisioned if we were going to do any women's stuff, I wanted to push push it toward mixing genders. Yeah. And that wasn't something that Biss... Nope, not something yeah. I like. Right? Um, Right. Well, let's talk about it. Right. Um, that's a philosophy difference that that we've had. Right. Yeah. And as you I mean, people that know the product now know where we are. Um, but, yeah, it's um, 
my my view on it has been, and we have found a way to do it without this being the case. Um, but my view is you can't doing intergender wrestling alone isn't enough to say that the girls are on the same footing as the boys, right? To to me, really putting them on the same footing is is giving them the same focus creatively, then letting their matches uh, sit on the card related to how hard they work and how much they're getting over. Now, we found a way to do that by integrating the genders, and I'm very proud of that. Um, but the idea of, oh, yeah, man, we're it, if I put uh, the women's wrestler in there with a guy and, you know, she holds her own, then they're even. Which yeah, is but, not, not even really what, what no. we wound up doing. I think no. my psychology was that I wanted to present women as not women, just other competitors as, as wrestlers right? yeah and in a lot of a lot of uh the issue that a lot of people have with intergender is the size difference but i think you look at somebody like say bruce lee bruce lee who had a, who, who is like the poster boy for fighting science and really yeah. pro wrestling is about fighting fighting science fighting style and if if you are uh if you if you have like you know that fighting acumen that spirit that knowledge that science in your head you even the smallest person can overcome a Goliath. I mean, some of the greatest pro wrestling stories ever are David versus Goliath stories. Yeah. But anyway, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of move on from this. Yeah. But I, I can say that right now, kind of drifting back into talking about Brand and Stroud, he was a guy that was really uh, pushing uh, for for women's wrestling in the company. And I think that's kind of where he saw his end. And I think that this is probably the show where he began to, and I'm just going to flat out say it, manipulating people within the company to to achieve what he was, uh, what what he wanted to yeah. uh, get over in the company. Yeah, this, this was definitely the first step, um, and then you'll start to really see it into show three, and then I go on a tyrant when we get to show four. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think uh, so. Two more things I got to address. Uh, Mr. Sistine. Oh boy. So uh, in the at the first show, we had a guy planted in the audience who was uh, who was his name was Bryce. I don't remember his. Yeah, he was a friend of Josh's. He, Josh Montgomery, who was uh, owner of the company. Josh, can I? He was a friend of Josh's who was a professional wrestler. Yeah, he was trained by the the group up in Graham, Texas. Um, Despite the fact that I believe a few people took umbrage to the fact that he was in the company, people said he was not trained. He was yeah, trained. He was. Um, Anyway, uh, so we had this character by the name of Mr. Sistine, who was planted uh, in the audience at the first show, and he wore a black suit, and he took notes, and his whole thing was he would just talk shit on the wrestlers and their gear, and he was very fixated on gear, and his initial gimmick was very much like he was the Mr. Blackwell of professional wrestling. He was critiquing gear, and in fact, we would give him notes, uh, we would, you know, kind of pepper and jokes <laughs> and he would he would scream things about people just having really shitty trash bag gear yeah um and this was this was going somewhere but i neglected to mention that but uh this is i believe something that continues on this show where he is in the audience screaming at people and i think he even gets on commentary yeah, he, i think he was in the crowd the first show uh commentary the second show yeah i i, I did not like this um I I didn't get it. It's not it's not my alley of humor. Um, but yeah, I I never got I never 
I never liked this. <laughs> Biz, Biz, can, Biz can bellyache and bitch yeah. all he wants, but the, the, the fact of the matter is that the payoff was great, and I think it's undeniable. Um, and, and people still talk about it today, but we'll get to the payoff yeah. at a later point. But, um, yeah, Mr. Sistine is loud and proud here. Uh, we also have to talk about uh, Josh Montgomery, who <laughs> was one of the owners of the company, yes. uh, basically gave up filming the show <laughs> in the middle of the show due to technical difficulties. Yeah. And... Um, we we got it. We got to mention this because Josh Josh was clutch for a lot of reasons. Josh um, invested in the company. He also made sure that every show was uh, insured, which is something yes. that a lot of people in wrestling don't often do. They yeah. don't insure their events, but we, especially at this time in in the day, right? Yeah, two thousand thirteen. Um, a lot of people may say they were, but man, there wasn't a lot of people hitting up fucking event uh, insurance. I can tell you that. No. Um, this was the show where afterward Josh transitioned to being our live sound man who was in charge of cues and was behind the board and sat there with uh, the commentators and had a hand in that stuff technically as well. Uh, I think Josh was initially bitter about being moved to that position. However, he excelled at it. And honestly, when you're the guy that's got to make sure that uh, Stone Cold's glass breaking is on <laughs> cue, you become very clutch, very important. And he did a great job of it. And, um, you know, he, he, um, he definitely was really important and kind of hard to replace. We, it yeah. took us a long time once he, uh, moved out of the company. I have seen many matches ruined because someone, uh, has played the winner's music before the end of the match. As crazy as that is to think about, right? So yeah. the sound guy is a extremely important position uh, it's it's one of those that you don't notice until they fuck up, but yeah, he it it's it's one of the most important staff positions that you have at a show. Absolutely. So okay, well let's um, you have anything to say yeah. before we leap let's, into? Let's also let's touch on Jack Armstrong. Oh we, yeah, we spoke about the ring um getting pulled literally two days before our show. Yeah. Um. So Jack Armstrong and his family, literally his family, um, came in the clutch and have been our ring crew since that first show. I can think of only like a handful of one-off promotional times that we ran wrestling that they were not there to set up the ring. Um, yeah, so Jack used to run a wrestling promotion uh, kind of in the outskirts of San Antonio. Um and he owns a ring that he rents out. He had recently rented out to Southern Championship Wrestling. Uh, he was also contracted at one point to tour with the Micro Championship Wrestling or the Extreme Midget, Midget Brawlers, wrestling. whatever it is. So Jack has, to this day, constantly told me that if I ever need a, a little person, that probably not the term he used, but, you know, that he could get a hold of that for me. So, <laughs> Hey, one of those things that I've never taken advantage of. But, yeah. Uh, they have been there since day one, and they literally build the stage for us. So I wanted to make sure I, I shouted out Jack. Absolutely. They are they are wonderful people. I think, honestly, Jack Armstrong and his uh, you know, his, his family ha really gave me a strong sense of community when, uh, when, when I first came into this thing. You know, Jack's been 
ultimately kind toward my children. He was always kind to me, and uh, he always made. I always look forward to seeing him. Shows yeah. shows oftentimes for me feel like many family reunions, and he's definitely one of the reasons why. Yeah, the the first first face that we see after you know. 20 and 30 minutes going, oh, shit, where's Jack at? He was supposed to be here 20 minutes ago. Like, yeah. You know. But anyway, okay, so the show ends. We mop up the hall, and we already kind of know where we're going, and we begin to cobble together the second show. I think a lot of people, including maybe even Bist, <laughs> thought that we weren't coming. There was a potential <laughs> that we were not going to do another show. So uh, the idea that you know we kind of uh, flew through the flames and yeah. came out the other end, and people were excited about the next one was was uh, heartening. Yeah, I still had my wristwatch on. Yeah. You know, uh, we we paid everyone what we agreed to pay them on the first show, so that that's a uh, that's a plus, right? You, I'm sure people have heard horror stories of promoters, and if you haven't, this happens. They bring in a bunch of people, agree to a certain fee, and then can't pay it, and then they slip out the back door. So I didn't have to slip out the back door and leave Max to fend for himself. So that was good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I will say I will say this. Um, I got a lot of shit about never lacing up a pair of boots. I had people telling me that I didn't belong in a wrestling company. Um, that. I think uh, there was one notable person who said that it was a shame that I had any modicum of influence over the Texas wrestling scene. One guy I do want to give a shout out to, though, is a fellow by the name of Jax Dane. And Jax publicly said, while people were dogging me, uh, he, he asked the question, are people getting paid? And the answer was, yeah. And then he said, were people at the show? And uh, everybody had to say, yeah. And Jax said, then he's a wrestling promoter and you need to shut up and show him some respect. And because of him, I found it a lot easier to maneuver going forward. Yeah. Jax was a sweetheart. Um, We've had our differences here or there, but you know, that's on, that's under the bridge at this point. And and we'll talk about one on this show, but you know, overall Jax is a a sweetheart of a guy. Anyway, uh, is there anything you want to say before we, launch into that second day we walked into Man, Marquesa. I, I wish that I could false start this like three times to build up hype, but let's just jump into it. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I would like to start that helped us out in the early days, uh, we had Rachel Summerlin on color commentary for the first couple of shows. Oh yeah. And that really kind of helped guide Eamon who was new to commentary um, through that and to, to get him going. So, um, that was a huge benefit. Rachel was basically my wrestling mom. So it was cool to me to have her there, um, seeing what was going on and, and giving tips here and there. And here's a bit of dirt. Um, this goes back to Stroud. Um, I loved, I loved Rachel and I admire, I admire her, uh, a whole lot. Uh, but at the time, this is like in retrospect, I, I realized Brandon was this was a part of his manipulation was that he would tell me that Rachel hated me and that I shouldn't be booking a company. <laughs> he said that she said that. And um, and so I was ultimately kind of wary initially uh, being around her because I, I just I had all these people telling me, like, you know, we hate you, bro. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was uh, it, it, it was tough. Um, I, I, I wish she were still around cause she was, she was, you know, all that other stuff aside, a delight to be around. And she was, she had, a, she has a really great mind for wrestling. Yeah. yeah and that's, uh, 
that was something that we didn't weren't aware was going on. But man, looking back, how much like those little those little things that he would drop just disrupted what could have been a much smoother process. I have a, I have a question yep. before we start. When do you find it? Uh, when do you find it pivotal that I I bring up uh, Papa Domino? Let's do it now. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it now. Because that was a pretty early. Well, it was pretty the, early. The Papa Domino thing, too, got me heat. And so yeah, that, it did. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, yeah. Anyway. I think... Yeah, let's no. Go ahead and, and explain it, and then I'll kind of preface it of why why it would have generated you heat, even though that's not where it was coming from. Well, I also think that I've been proven that this concept held water and, and has been successful oh, just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um. So there, uh, there, there's a wrestler that that I used to see regularly in uh, ACW uh, by the name of uh, Killa Cash Yule, and um. For the majority of his time in the ring, there he was, uh, he was a heel, and uh, he he had some some moments that I, I wouldn't quite say he should be proud of in that ring. So um, he wrestled fucking slim sexy for twenty fucking minutes in a match that was supposed to be like ten that I pulled my fucking hair out that people still talk about to this day. Uh, he also had his his pants fall down around his ankles <laughs> accidentally. In one match, it might have been that match. Actually, yeah. it was just it was just a train wreck. Now the thing is, is that I, I always thought thought you know Yule had something. I think he has I think he has a great deal of charisma, and he has uh you know a unique look. Um, he has a great voice. Um, but you know whenever I would actually meet him outside of the shows, um, there was just something really ultimately kind about him, and I felt like I really wanted to cheer for him. But that's not the character that was being pushed on us. But I just didn't think that he responded to uh, also the crowd well. I think a lot of the times, sometimes the responses kind of bugged him. Um, but in, anyway, I was uh, Yule was one of the guys that people said you should do something with this guy. What would you do for Yule? And uh, so I uh, I had this idea of I'm going to take this guy and make him the most over fucking guy <laughs> in all of Texas wrestling. And I had this idea of creating a character by the name of Papa Domino and Papa Domino was going to be a pizza delivery guy in the classic Domino style windbreaker who, who would come out with several pizzas and hand out pizza slices to the audience and then get in the ring and of course wrestle but he'd have like a you know he'd have like some finishing move called the pizza cutter you know like a diamond cutter something something absurd like that and uh I I thought that this would get him over like gangbusters and uh, a lot of people thought that I was actually making fun of Yule, yeah. but I really wasn't. I, I think part of the character pitch was, right, to not wear trunks, right, and to, to kind of wear something that was more flattering. Yeah. And I think you approached that in a way that you would through acting, or the, as a, like a director would talk to an actor, and it's just... It was like a shock to a wrestling system, right? Like, who's this guy talking about physiques? All we do is talk about physiques. Well, I that's never mentioned his right? physique to him. Yeah. What I, I think that's how it got spun, right? Well, that's because Thomas Munoz said something like that to Albert. Yeah, and to Darren. And to, to Darren. Albert which it Darren. Had, I didn't. I didn't mention yeah. his. I didn't mention his physique. Yeah. And um, then that, but there's the ball rolling, right? Yeah. So now instead of approaching this from 
from a neutral position. He's already had these guys in his ears, right? And it's already been tainted. Um, it, it, they just basically built it up as it was us making fun of them, and that couldn't be further from the case. So the one thing I guess I, I, I will say is that uh, I talked to you about it. I made the pitch, and initially he was game. Yeah. And we were going to film a vignette out on my street where he was going to basically deliver a pizza and then go back to his car and count the money. And then some guy in a ski mask was going to like try and rob him. And then he was going to beat the hell out of, you know, the guy in the ski mask and go, hi, I'm Papa Domino. And it's, ha- it's hard out here on the streets. This is not an easy job. And, you know, then, you know, we'd use that to kind of build him up. And I bought the gear. Uh, that's another thing I'm, I need oh, to mention. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I bought I bought the gear. He had like a hat and he had uh, like a windbreaker, and he was going to provide some of the other components. And then uh, before he was going to debut, he told me he didn't want to do it. He backed out. Yeah. And then he tried to make some other pitch, and I said, "Well, I just invested in this, and if this is the way it's going to go, you know, I gotta I gotta say I gotta second I gotta second think about all this shit." Um, but. I, I will say that I, I didn't do this to put him down. It was intended to be a, a fun gimmick. Um, I will say that um, he was getting a lot of shit at shows, though, for the bikini trunk thing. Yeah. Um, his physique is a little bit different than, like, he's not like, Yule's not like, like a, he's not like ACH or yeah. Chandler Hopkins. He is. He's a six foot seven fucking. Yeah. 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 He's not, he's, he, his body type is different. And, uh, I, I did say, I didn't like call it, call, I didn't call him out on having a bad physique, which was what people said. I said, yeah. I never said that. So I need to clarify that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, since then there is a wrestler who works for our company <laughs> and he also works at another company called party world wrestling, uh, by the name of Luigi Primo. Yeah. Over like gangbusters, uh, hugely over like gangbusters. Anyone listening to this knows exactly who Luigi Primo is, so yeah. like, we don't even have to explain. Uh, it, Luigi yeah. Primo is currently the Inspire Pro <laughs> champion, in fact, yeah. and I can say that when he won that title, one of the most just chilling, electrifying moments ever of all yeah. time. And in some some ways, I felt I felt vindicated, but still, I um, yeah. I wish we'd been able well, to do that gimmick. One of my favorite moments was when that happened. You was at that show. You, mm-hmm. you remember that he was just visiting, but like, actually, he may have been on that card. Was he in a battle? I don't know. We'll get we'll get to that later. That's down the road, folks. Um, but yeah, I remember nudging him, and being like, "Bro, that could have been you. Like, we could have done this." But is what it is. And at a heavy metal show, he actually uh, tagged with Luigi Primo as Papa Domino at least one time. Yeah, which actually kind of pissed me off. Did it? I told him to do it. Yeah, but that that still pissed me off. Yeah. Like, call me and, you know, if I'm going to catch heat for uh, concocting something and then you're just going to appropriate it, and you know, I still suffered because of that. Yeah. I, I, I people, thought... People are going to go, oh, you suffered. No, fuck you, man. People, like, yeah. people like wanted to kick my ass, so... Yeah, but that, that was, that was, to me, that was vindication for you. That was concrete smoking gun vindication yeah well still i hold grudges um (laughs) let it it go man yeah fuck you um anyway uh i think the one thing i will say though is that papa domino and even the great depression gimmick these were gimmicks that were super cartoony in a lot of people's eyes and a lot of people see gimmicks like that as not being able to be considered seriously i will say that 
gimmicks like Depression and even Papa Domino and even the Sistine gimmick were gimmicks that I wanted to push that seemed silly, that seemed cartoonish, but that I wanted to give legs to. I still think the cartoon character can have massive moments of triumph and can have really fairly good dramatic moments. And, uh, you know, I would, I, I, I'm going to continue to do stuff like that. We always have in the company. Two out of three ain't bad, brother. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but... I'm shitting on Sistine again. Um, one one other character, as I move by, before you can uh, rebuttal that, um, that we didn't address from the first show was Gregory Simons. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Gregory Simons, who was kind of retired at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, he had, uh, he had had his retirement match. I want to say he wrestled Albert. He did. He wrestled Albert. He, he, he wrestled Albert, uh, ACH. And ACW, and it was his farewell match. Uh, Gregory Simons, I have to say, is one of the most positive and supportive people that I've ever met in my life. And while he wasn't able to wrestle at that point in his career, and he, you know, he, I knew that he still wanted to be around the business, but also he was like one of those people where I was like, I want this guy in my locker room. Yeah. So he's on my top five, like, best people in wrestling as at least as far as positivity he just radi- he, he's he, radi- on there, man. he radiates yeah. sunshine and yeah. um so we introduced him at the first show as kind of our gm yeah we needed a figurehead yeah Biss kind of slipped into that role over time after simon's yeah. left uh yeah. but yeah gregory was uh we had plans for gregory uh yeah. but uh things changed as they often do <laughs> card subject to change mm-hmm Okay, let's jump into this first show, man. Okay. So, um, in a in a weird weird thing that I used to hate about shows, and we did, and this one um, I thought came off really well. We started with a promo. Mm-hmm. We started with uh, Greg Simons in the ring, and uh, JoJo Bravo came out to address Jordan Jensen attacking him on the previous show. Yeah. So, um, anything. You want to go into there? Or? Not, not really. Um, I, I do think that this segment, personally for me, dragged a bit, and it was definitely uh, learning. This was part of the learning curve for me, where I decided from that point on, no, we need to start with action because people come here not to watch people talk, but to see people yeah. wrestle. Yeah. And so from that point on, I decided, no, I think if I were going to do this, I would have done this like after the first match. Yeah. Like as a bit of a cool well, down. We, we sort of we needed it to set up our first match, but we we could have kept it more concise i think i could have figured i could have yeah. arranged i could have shuffled the deck a bit to yeah. make it work no matter what you so know? so jojo is addressing his grievance with jordan jensen who debuted by attacking him at the last show uh jordan comes out and basically is like let's just fight right here and then we can be over with it and um i think it says something along the lines of like vegas sucks and that jensen should be in his spot and greg simons basically says well if you want in that tournament, you're going to have to earn it, and you're going to face this gentleman. Uh, so our first match is Jordan Jensen versus the debuting JT LaMotta. Yeah. So what were your thoughts of JT LaMotta at the time? Because I think I think that's a real good way to start into um, the story of JT LaMotta. I, I always thought uh, JT was uh, a superlative wrestler. I thought he was really, really talented. I know you're kind of tapping into my relationship with him as a fan a bit, uh, where I would... I, I mean, there was a... <laughs> there was a period where I was pretty vocal about how much I hated him, but that was because I felt like um, he was being shoved down our throats and he was 
portrayed as almost just like this goody two shoes type character. It was just it was just a bit much, but I felt like JT was an excellent heel character. So this is a lesson that I learned uh, before Inspire, uh, and it's something that I keep in mind. God, thank God, um, I haven't really had to, to deal with this lesson through Inspire because we've run exclusively in Austin. Yeah, I don't think we've run a single thing outside of Austin. Why bother? <laughs> so um, JT Lamada in 2006 w- was easily the best, you know, work rate guy. In Texas, and by 2007 was kind of like the flag bearer for the state of Texas. He was uh, he was the guy that that would wrestle the top work rate guys when they came in. Um, He'd make my head spin. He was great. Yeah, I, I will say that at least. Yeah. So this is all part of his, you know, ascend. Like, so he was the guy that you know your average promoter would put in the opening match because he wrestles fast, and you know that's what you put in the opening match. So the fans had watched him build up from that to now he's wrestling the uh, the top um, the top work rate guys from around the country, and finally he had built his way up and he had won the the main title in San Antonio. Um, and then shortly towards the end of his reign, we moved the focus of the shows to Austin. So those fans never saw the climb; they just saw this guy on top, right? Um, So that was a lesson that I learned that you have to focus on the crowds. You know, you can't just assume that the crowd has seen everything. Uh, If you move, you know, locations by more than 100 miles, those fans are going to jump in there. So uh, it's something I've always kept in the back of my mind and something that I always kind of am constantly evaluating. for us, it, it only came in when we would move venues, and it was just kind of a quick check, and everything usually worked out. But um, So, f- at this point, JT was winding down his career. Yeah. Um, and he was somebody that I, uh, I really enjoyed working with. He basically, I think at this point, had um, his final couple matches planned out. And this is a true wrestling retirement, um, but... Uh, basically had his final couple matches planned out. And I think the idea was he would wrestle uh, two matches for us, and then he would finish up his uh, career at ACW. Um, so we had that. And uh, so he comes in, he wrestles Jordan Jensen. Now I've pulled back the fucking curtain, so the, the creative kind of gets lost in this. But uh, Jensen wins when Dalton runs out. And... Uh, and helps Jensen win, kind of forming a uh, an alliance between those two. And and also, I think playing some history between Dalton and, and yep. JT Lamada that existed. I I one of the things that I was really keen on doing was exploring uh, history that previ- previously existed between wrestlers. And one thing that I was really people were critical about behind the scenes was like, bro, you can't assume that anybody's fucking seen this. Blah 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 blah. But the thing is, is that I wasn't just trying to dig up Texas wrestling or exploit it. A lot of the time when I reintroduced these connections between people is because I knew that these people had chemistry and they had the ability to put on really phenomenal barn burner type matches. It was just basically, in some ways, giving these guys context to do what they did great and work with one another. And a lot of the time when someone, like say Dalton, would come in, 
you'd ask them, well, who do you want to work with? Which is one of the questions I basically ask. They would say, I want to work with X, Y, Z. And so that's what you set up. Yeah. See, to me, too. All right. So if someone's never seen any of it before and they just come into this, they understand why those two are fighting. If they do dig a little deeper, they're going to find answers that still point to this happening and being logical. So, like, it's just to me, it's a it's not a good reason uh, not to at least tip a hat at the very least, to previous history. Pro wrestling is like the Highlander, man. I mean, people are running at each other with swords and trying to be the one. This thing, this, this, these people have relationships, histories, feuds that extend across the state, across the country. And, and you know what? If there are four or five people in my book who are at the show who get the nod, to me, that's worth it. Because yeah. I think a lot of the times that's, that creates an enthusiasm that spreads yeah. through the crowd. Hey, brother. Marvel needs to stop putting those Easter eggs in movies because maybe not everybody gets them. Get exactly. the fuck out of here. Right? Exactly. Okay. So, uh, Jordan Jensen and JT LaMotta, to me, and I was a guy that pushed for Jensen very hard from the beginning. This was where the cracks started to show. Um, this was originally chalked up to, well, uh, maybe he just struggled to keep up with LaMotta. But in ring-wise, there were some little moments where some red flags were raised as far as um, performance-wise, if he would be able to keep up to the level that we, we had talked about originally. Yeah. Before And beforehand, I think there was a period where Jensen looked phenomenal in terms of his physique and conditioning. Yeah. Um, but when when he came in, it I, f- I feel like maybe he just wasn't where he was or what I was previously yeah, familiar and, with. Yeah, and I think clearly he had gone through... he. Had, basically been blackballed from wrestling so i think there was maybe some you know maybe some meant you know not mental health issues but definitely gone through a down period right yeah so um but anyway that gets that gets jensen into the uh he gets him into the company basically he was not technically a contracted worker but that storyline wise that's how we brought him in and now we have him in the fold we still have a story with him and jojo and we have now have him involved with the the title tournament uh, due to his win here. And there's an alliance with, with, with Dalton with in Dalton. some way. Yeah. The, the nine-inch males, I believe. Yes. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Yeah, um, the nine-inch males. Uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a guy that is big on uh, alliances and factions. Um, not everybody is super into that, but me personally, I think it is it is likely that when you have people of dubious character that they will rely on uh, connections to help them especially you know, uh, climb the ladder, yeah. so to speak. And of course, by nature, people need other people to have their backs. It's, it's, it's like a, it's like a disease, you know, it, it's the unit system. Yeah. Like we're like the 20 count on the outside and some of the other stuff we do, we're clearly influenced by new Japan pro wrestling. Yeah. So Safety like, in numbers is, is yeah. a, is a big, uh, is a big storyline device that I love. Yeah. So we move on from that to, uh, the great depression versus Thomas Shire. Okay. And this is this is Depression's second match, right? So Depression wins with the Eye Claw. Um, Shire is very goofy here. Yeah, Shire Shire is um, a really incredible uh, guy. He's young at this. He's young yeah. at this point, and he but and but he'd he'd had a mountain of experience. He'd been to Japan. Yeah, um, and uh, he he could go. He was also at the same time having bangers with Masada and San Antonio. Yeah, you know, um, he's also uh, one of the funniest people I've met in the business. 
He, yes. no, one, no one makes me laugh like him, but I always felt like there were times where you would see glimmers of that, but not the whole enchilada. But then there were times where you just wanted him to be really kind of like a, a serious killer. Yeah, you know? that's not what we got here. We, I think this yeah. is what we thought we were getting here, but that's not exactly what we got from Shire. No, in this match. Um, and of course the um, the claw. This is the one Depression's finisher was yep. the uh, was was the Von Eric claw. <laughs> no, it, it was. Um, so I stole this from Gary Hart. So when Gary Hart feuded with Fritz in Amarillo. Fritz had the head claw and Gary had the eye claw. So okay. it was the battle of claws. And I didn't want to just take the head claw. So um, we went with the eye claw to where he's basically gouging his eye out. And I thought it fit, you know, well with the the burlap sack monster vision. Yeah, right? Penny is his manager. Penny, Penny Arcade. Penny is still here. Still here, yep. screaming in French. Uh, she is over like gangbusters because she's just screaming in a foreign language and beating them at the entire time looked amazing too she yeah. had the the period clothing and yeah yeah and uh and so for me uh this is me building my serious monster this is my um this is my my cane my papa shango in a way but uh i never really intended him to be a comedy um later on other people would try to kind of force yeah. him into comedic roles and it really was not what i wanted for him i wanted to have a character who would ultimately win titles and and be a be a serious threat that i never really wanted to see defanged or, or turned into like a gag yeah. but this is the start of him building this street kind of so from there we go into what was um from the beginning one of my uh one of the storylines that i wanted to push uh, this is the Dagger Brothers' debut against Pump Patrol. The Dagger Brothers were two brothers who had just moved from Puerto Rico, uh, matching gear, similar looks, um, and then amazing chemistry. Yeah, I mean they're brothers, right? They had been on the the big Puerto Rico shows in Puerto Rico, but legit, not yeah. not not storyline. No, like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. They, um, you know, so. Uh, I think Kevin had moved here first mm -hmm. and then the other brother and I can't think of his name had just just gotten to the state side. This was legit like one of those instances where you were really scouting people. Yes. Like uh, that's the you know I give you tremendous due for always having your finger on the pulse of seeing guys that you know were doing shows outside of Austin and you'd be like bro you need to look at this. Yeah. So this guy these guys here um we there was a tag feud that we really wanted to to get them into um and next episode we'll go into kind of where that crashed and burned but uh yeah dagger brothers uh get the victory over pump patrol now pump patrol is a fun story too uh this was the baby of josh montgomery yeah um he wanted to create these characters who were kind of uh narcissistic gym rats but also kind of goofy okay so the Pump Patrol were basically these gym rat characters that uh, Josh Montgomery came up with. Josh is actually a really funny guy. And him and I would oftentimes um, come up with fairly indecent or offensive gimmicks to hang on people. Um, but they were always really fun and funny. And I always really enjoyed riffing with him. Um, there were a few contributions to this, this particular uh, gimmick that I had. I actually wrote a lot of the jokes that they would uh, come up with. Uh, for example, one of the jokes was uh, he, uh, Jared Wayne would threaten to take people to Schlitterbron, 
which <laughs> which is obviously like a bad pun. Um, and of course, this is I think is this the show where they throw whey powder in someone's yes. face? Okay, yeah, they used whey powder to throw in people's faces and and you know yeah. take advantage of that like in true heel fashion, yeah. though a little goofy. They would come to the ring with like a cooler of like shakers or you know like like protein shakers or. You know, I forget what the other thing was. They would they would come to the ring. Well, one one of the things that they would do is they would come to the ring and fat shame the audience yeah. and then throw out packages of baby carrots. Yes. Or, or like broccoli. And they would tell people that they, you know, they live like shit and they need to get their acts together. Yeah. And uh, they were <laughs> they were they were very. Um, they were they were loved, but they were they, they got they people got loved yeah. to hate them. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, Jared Wayne and A.J. Summers. um you know, Jared was from New Orleans, uh, from that school. And then AJ was from San Antonio and had not been treated particularly nice for, by that group. So it was a it was a chance to give him something and really kind of show what he had. But I, I do want to say that this was an exclusive Inspire thing, like this gimmick. Yeah, for this show. <laughs> well, no, I mean, no, yeah. it, it was born yeah, we, in our company. Uh, is we spit polished this. You and you and Josh basically yes. fucking created this yeah. from the ground up. Absolutely. And, and, yeah, fuck it. Let's go into it now. Um, no, let's wait. We're gonna wait. Let's wait. Let's wait for when they disappear. Okay. Okay. Because that that's so. You know. So tune in for that one. Yeah. Because there will be some ranting. Okay. So from that. <laughs> This fucking match right here. So this is this is a good look into you know why we pull our hair out, right? So the original match and and it went back further than I remembered was uh, Alex Reigns versus Chris Cross was what this this segment was supposed to be. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. So Alex Reigns gets injured. Okay. So now we have to find a replacement for Alex Reigns. Yeah. And. I, so one of the people in my car load when I was traveling the state of Texas was Jacus Pliskin. And for people that don't know Jacus, Jacus is extremely physically intimidating, uh, trained at um, FCW in Atlanta, uh, was mentored by Bob Holly, um, right? Um, a legit intimidating wrestler. There yeah. aren't a lot of wrestlers who I would not want to fuck with yeah. okay a lot of these guys have never been in a fist fight in their lives yeah okay but there there's a pocket of legitimate intimidating scary dudes and i would put jacus on that short list so when you were watching him there was just this 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 belief that maybe he was really killing people yeah <laughs> you know yeah so when i the very short period of time that i was training to be a pro wrestler um, I rolled around with Jacobs on multiple occasions. And Jacobs was extremely powerful. But Jacobs was a professional, right? There was never a point in time where Jacobs ever took advantage of me. Um, I never saw Jacobs take advantage of anyone else during training. Um, and he'd also he'd also had a few cups of coffee in some notable places at this yeah. point in time. I, I feel like he had been to the mountain that a lot of people who aspire to reach it you know had been he'd been J there jacus was hard to deal with for one reason because he had been to you know wwe developmental and he knew when an indie show was just bullshit you know what i mean yeah so if you were just a, a random spot show 
and you tried to puff out your chest, he wasn't going to buy it. You know, he'd had Bill DeMont fucking verbally abusing him, you know, like he, he knew what the, the hierarchy was. Right. Um, but so Chris Cross gets cold feet. Uh, I need to talk about this because yeah. I, t- I talked this, to Chris. This is your side of it here. Yeah. So Chris Cross, who was this young kind of Zach Efron looking fucker who uh, he was well conditioned um, and he was he was OK in the ring. And, uh, you know, he had a charisma um, was initially supposed to face Alex Reigns. Alex gets injured. And so we decide we're going to pop the crowd by introducing Jacus. And when I tell Chris that we're switching gears and we're going to be using Jacus, he expresses that he is concerned that he is going to get killed by Jacus. I don't know why, but he had this impression that Jacus was a super stiff, unsafe worker. And so he decided that uh, he didn't feel comfortable with it. And we have a long talk about it. And I say, look, this isn't going to happen. And I said, there's, you know, you could, you could probably benefit from working with Jacus. Jacus has been to places where you want to be. Because at this point, Chris was saying, I want to be in the WWE. That's, that's what he keeps, you know, whistling yeah. at me. And I managed to kind of, I think, pep him up. And he agrees to do the match. Now, a few days before this, uh, he tells he calls me chris calls me and tells me that he has torn a bicep i think <laughs> yes that's right and he no, can a pectoral a pectoral he, he tore a pectoral muscle and could not be at the show and so we decide to put someone else uh in his place um but i gotta say that weekend uh this dipshit kid crisscross this fucking ugh, no integrity I, I'm getting angry just thinking about this. This motherfucker starts posting gym selfies of himself after he told me that he tore a pectoral muscle. Uh, one of which is doing the bench press. Yeah. <laughs> he's doing. He's posting videos of himself bench pressing shit. And so I go, I, I message him and go, I thought you said you were hurt, man. You didn't have to lie to me. And this guy, who is also uber Christian conservative... Starts going, I don't have to listen to some guy that's never laced up a pair of boots. And so I fire back, aren't you this clean-cut Christian dude and you're lying to me? You're violating the commandments <laughs> that you swear by very publicly. And you couldn't have even just told me you didn't feel comfortable. If you'd said no, I would have been fine with that. But the fact that you lied to me, fuck you. You're never coming back. Yeah. And that's how that ended. So so now we have Jacus Pliskin versus Barrett Brown. right? Barrett Brown is... <laughs> Is uh, a guy. So I will never work with somebody under the age of eighteen, if if at all possible. Um, if I'm aware that they're under that age, and it's my job to do that homework and and know that stuff, right? So Barrett Brown was somebody. He started training when he was sixteen. Um, so I would see him on these shows and. It was literally like the countdown to him turning 18. He was very much a prodigy at that time. Um, picked up wrestling very quick. Incredible talent. Yeah, so he, he'd been wrestling for a while. So it, it was very exciting that we got to have Barrett in and, and to work with, with Barrett on the show. Yeah. Because uh, he was somebody I enjoyed working with. Um, so now we have Barrett Brown and Jacobs Bliskin. So we get to the night before the show. And I am working... 12 to 16 hour days uh, at this point. Um, in the middle of my shift, 
I get a call from Jacus telling me that he's not coming the next day. <laughs> All right. I think we're going to stop right there and carry this over into the next episode. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, please tune in next time to hear the rest of what <laughs> happened at Wired for a War because it got a little messy. Yes. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you uh, next week. <laughs>